Hello, good evening, and welcome to GradCast, the official radio and podcast show of the Society of Graduate Students. Uh, my name is Yimin Chen. I'm your co-host today, together with Tanya. Hello, Tanya. Hi, Yimin. So we were on just recently together as well. Yeah, last week. <laughs> Except this time we don't have Tristan with us. So. Yeah, he's uh, he recently got married and he's having his honeymoon in the, the Dominican Republic. And we are all very, very jealous because he's posted tons of pictures of just pina coladas on the beach. Well, we all know he's listening to the radio show, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so, without further ado, we're very excited to welcome our guest today. We have Annalise Trudell joining us. Annalise is a recent graduate from the PhD program of Women's Studies, so we have Dr. Annalise Trudell here with us today. Welcome, Annalise. Thanks, Tanya. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. I'm excited to be here. So we've got lots of questions for Annalise, so we're just going to get right into it with the most basic question, which is, what did you do? What did I do for the for research? Your research. Um, so about five years ago, I started working at a local agency, the Sexual Assault Center of London, and I launched a program called Girls Creating Change. So it's a violence prevention program for high school girls. And I decided that I wanted to study the impact of that program on girls' sense of themselves as agents. So being an agent or having agency is the opposite of being a victim. It's a sense of having capacity in your life, whether that's actions or thoughts. So I went and I asked the girls who are alumni of that program what agency meant to them, what it felt like, when they felt that, how they felt it. So it was focus group-based, qualitative research. And yeah, that's, I guess, the short elevator speech. (laughs) So how old were these girls that you were working with? So the girls in the actual focus groups range between 15 and 19. Mm -hmm. Um, The program range is larger. So the program range is 13 to 25. Um, And that was just per chance that the focus groups were a bit smaller in range. Mm -hmm. Great. So you you used the term um, victim in your your spiel there. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about how we're trying to shift from victim to survivor and what that means? Yeah. so in the movement, in the rape crisis movement, in the violence against women movement, we try to think of women as being survivors of things rather than victims. Victim implies that you have no actionable agency in what you can do. You're not empowered. You're only there to be saved. Survivor means that you're strong. You've lived through it. You have dealt with your own life and taken the actions necessary for you, whatever those mean. So when we're thinking about girls programming, how we transfer that, we don't necessarily talk about survivors because some of the girls aren't necessarily survivors. It's in a prevention space. But rather than talking about girls as victims of like rape culture or negative media or bad self-esteem or street harassment or bullying, these are all sort of what we tend to talk about for girls um, or over-sexualization. We talk about how girls are actually owning their lives. And mm-hmm. it's a shift in the narrative. Um, but most of the research that's sort of pop culture-based research is really focusing on girls as victims. So how do you sort of push back at that narrative by intentionally focusing on their agency? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, can you give some examples, some sort of context about um, what you're talking about when you talk about this pop culture perception of girls as victims? Like, what does that look like? What does that mean? Yeah. So, and it's not defined just within pop culture. I think in the, in the 90s, um, there was a body of literature that really emerged called girlhood or girl studies. Mm-hmm. And it was like Mary Pfeiffer would be a really famous one. But there were particular researchers that came out and were talking about like the inundation of sort of messages on girls and their bad self-esteem. And, and you see that in, say, the Dove app. 
campaigns, right? Where we're talking a lot about how girls have really shitty self-esteem, so how we need to own our bodies and sort of get outside of that. Um, a lot of schools, um, so I work a lot with the school board locally, but there's a lot of focus on bullying and how bullying is felt by girls, particularly around sort of dress codes or how they're sort of scripted into what they can wear. Um, and sort of trying to have healthy sexualities in spite of that. So there tends to be a lot of, like, the premise is already there that girls are being harmed, and now we're trying to do actions around that. So in a way, is it a conversation that starts with a, like, yes, but kind of thing, a, you know, a acceptance of, you know, being victims, of being, um, you know, harmed in a way, and then how to deal with it rather than, starting as them as sort of people as individuals with their own you, you mentioned agency their own yeah. decision making skills their own sort of self worth and power yeah it's yeah. a fine line okay so i think there's a real balance between like a social justice understanding that patriarchy exists mm-hmm. that women and girls um by just their very definition of who they are as gendered beings are going to sort of be survivors or victims of something Um, So we need to hold that space, but at the same time, starting from the premise that we define you as already having experienced harm and now we're trying to delve beyond that, kind of reproduces that harm. It re-incites that that's the main part of your identity, that's the main definer of your narrative, and then sort of delves into that. So how can we hold a space where we're not preemptively defining girls as sort of under the harm umbrella, but also holding true that, yeah, well, they live in a patriarchy and that they are experiencing harm. And we don't want to erase that by saying they're just humans and that sort of we're all on an equal playing field. So going back to your research, in terms of your results, what, what did give, give the girls in your program agency? I really, really focused in on um, how they were able to narrate their sense of themselves as being agential. So some girls were using language like pansexual or genderqueer or gender nonconforming to identify themselves. And I don't know about you, but at 17, that was not language I had access to. Mm-hmm. That would not be how I would have been able to frame who I am in the world. Um, so really understanding power structures, like I, that's my language, but they were really aware of all the constraints that they had on their identities and they were narrating that to me. And yet by being aware of them and then finding those like lines of flight between them, those mm-hmm. abilities to sort of delve into something slightly different, something disjuncting in that identity space was really agential for them. So it was wasn't this massive action where they have to sort of street protest or they had to, you know, go to university or get like a well-paying job and be the success story of the world. Um, that it was in no way how they defined it. And realistically, almost all of the girls were quote unquote at risk, mm-hmm. as problematic as that language is. So those definers of success wouldn't have resonated anyways. So you use terms like, you know, power structures, like lines of flight and so on, very academic terms. Um, What sort of things did the people in your study talk about? Like, what were the words, how did they, what are these narratives Mm -hmm. that they were saying to you? So, big caveat, all of the girls who were part of the study had gone through over 10 weeks of programming that familiarized them with some of the language. So they, when we mention the word power, Mm -hmm. they don't understand power as like your parent being able to tell you to go to bed. They understood power as structural power. Um, So they understood what racism, sexism, classism, homophobia, these were familiar territories for them. Mm -hmm. Um, So both in the sense of having imbued them with language that had happened in programming, but also 
again, back to the, the quote-unquote at risk, their lived experience, they, this wasn't new territory for them. Right. Um, they had been harassed in different parts of their life. Many of them are living in some form of social housing. Um, many of them are survivors of some form of sexual violence. So for them to be able to talk about that, again, that's not new space. They're not coming from places of privilege where that's sort of undoing the blinders of what that would look like. So back to your question, though, what mm-hmm. was the language that they used to narrate yeah. that? Um, they talked a lot about how the media pressures them to sort of be certain kinds of girl. Like, what did girl even mean? Um, so being sexualized, but then at the same time, some of them were saying they really like to have sex. So mm-hmm. how was that problematic? And how did they felt like this double bind on it? Mm-hmm. Um, many of them were teen mothers. So almost half of the girls um, who participated were teen mothers. And a lot of the focus there was on how teen moms are bad moms. Um, how teen moms, especially if you're sort of a two-time teen mom, so you've had two children right. um, under the age of 18, how you are you're harassed on the bus, um, how people judge your morality even in those moments. So they were really familiar with those narratives. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the program that they, they, had to, they got to experience, t- uh, the 10 weeks that you were mentioning, mm-hmm. what's, uh, aside from the terms that you shared with us, what occurred during those 10 weeks? What did they get to engage in? So they met weekly uh, for a couple hours with facilitators, so not with me. Mm-hmm. Um, they're facilitators through the Sexual Assault Center. And so week one is just introduction, but then we get into sort of what are gender roles? What does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be a man? How can we deconstruct that? What does the media say about that? Then we get into what is rape culture? Um, how do the gender roles interact together and all of this is done through activity-based arts formats so we're not just talking at them um they're engaging in counterculture so we would give them let's say a magazine cover and then they'd be able to block out white spaces of what some of the words said and rewrite what those were um, sort of reclaim what those narratives are say on like a cosmo cover or something Um, we do a week on power and privilege so that's really the intersections of all the different identities and understanding those um, we do a week where we invite Emma O'Connor, who's the owner of Femme Force Fitness, and um, she does a sort of like a reclaiming your body strength thing. So it's not a self-defense course because girls are offered self-defense courses all the time, and that kind of rescripts the idea that right. they're victims. Um, this was really about taking up power in space. Mm-hmm. So they they're strong um, and they you know punch it and do things, and <laughs> it's really cool to see. Right. Well, uh, wait, what does yeah? it mean to take up power in space? Yeah, that's a really academic-y jargon. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it means that girls are taught to... T- I mean, you can't see me on the radio right now, but I'm mm-hmm. taking up small space. My legs are crossed. I'm kind of hunched in. Um, and so there's been a really famous movement about a, a month ago about the subway space and how mm-hmm. guys uh, spread eagle their Man legs spreading? and take up... Yeah. I, I can... You can demonstrate over the radio. I mean, I could demonstrate over the radio. Um, yeah. It's like on the bus where like girls put their backpacks on their lap and right. sit on one seat. And yeah, whereas I'm taking up two different, two, maybe even three spaces yeah. in my bag of number four. Exactly. Right. And even in our voice, voice tones, I, I tend to use a gentler tone. Ah. Um, I am not actually all that good about not cutting people off, but generally women try not to cut people off. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there are different ways that we don't take up space and that idea of sort mm-hmm. of having defined muscles and being strong and aggressive in a gym context um, 
like Emma gets them to punch these punching bags and do very boot campy things that are, are, are not feminine. That's um, great. So yeah. it's redefining what strength means to them, which is really cool. Um, sometimes we have a local sexologist come in, Dr. Carlin, mm-hmm. um, and, and sort of familiarize girls with sex words, which realistically a lot of them are already familiar with, um, but just have honest and frank conversations about what good sex feels like. Um, and then we do two or three weeks on taking action. So the girls come up with some sort of pushback moment that they want to engage in. So some of those have been Twitter campaigns. Some of them have been chalking campaigns at Victoria Park. Mm-hmm. One of them have made a video. Um, yeah, and so they, they put out some message that's important to them after having done all the sort of analytical space for eight weeks. So I have a question for you. So a lot of times people believe that to kind of push back against, I guess, the ideology of what's feminine, you have to be not feminine. Right. And so it ends up being kind of this, um, we, we kind of go back and forth. So we criticize those girls who are not feminine. And then also those girls who are feminine, we're still criticizing them for not breaking out of the feminine box. Mm-hmm. So what are your comments on that? So how do, how do girls deal with that, I guess? Absolutely. And you're hitting at the sort of third wave feminism issue. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and, and that's that's real. So as soon as we start to, even you could see it in my language, I was defining what they do in the boot camp as being not feminine um, and falling into that trope in some ways. And there's, so from a program management space, I'm really intentional about trying to provide girls in each group with multiple examples of what it means to be a woman. So in terms of how there's always two facilitators, well, they embody femininity differently, and I'm intentional about putting that in front of them. Mm -hmm. Um, Many of our facilitators fall somewhere on the spectrum of the rainbow community, and I'm intentional about having that exposure. Um, Emma O'Connor, the way in which she embodies her gender space is different than the way in which I do. So being able to hold different models in front of the girls so that they can navigate those con- like confines. But yeah, it's a trippy line to be able to criticize the media and its representation of hypersexualized, over-feminized mm-hmm. bodies, but at the same time hold space for the lipstick-wearing, high-heel-wearing, mm-hmm. reclaimed sort of femininity. Yeah. Right. So yeah. It, the group of girls that were in your study, like they're, sorry, not in your study, but the group of girls that participated in the program, their age went up to 25 so was there a difference I guess in how they accepted the messages based on where they were in school or in careers or wherever they were at in life I don't know that I want to directly like establish a causal link between age Mm -hmm. and criticality or critical thinking um that being said (laughs) when we run the group with uh 13 14 year olds there's a big difference between running it with a 20, 25-year-old. That's that's an overgeneralization. Mm-hmm. There are some 13-year-olds that have had a lot of lived experience that they've critically thought through and can connect to larger oppressions and blah, blah, blah. Um, but yes, the longer you have lived, the more lived experience often you have gone through and you can then, it's sort of the traditional feminist consciousness raising, right? You can link that moment in time of your own experience to something greater right. in terms of an oppressive structure. Right. Okay. So this program you said is offered through the Sexual Assault Center of London. Yep. Um, so uh, for our listeners, Annalise is the manager of education. Did I get that right? Yep. <laughs> at SACL. So maybe if you could tell us a little bit about SACL to start. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, starting with a bit of a caveat, we are 
merging with Women's Community House, which was just announced. Um, so all of what I'm saying is going to hold true, but we are going to have another name in a couple of months. So oh, it's going okay. to it's going to shift a little bit. Um, so Sackle started about 40 years ago with a crisis and support line for survivors of sexual assault. And it was women-driven volunteers. Um, so that crisis and support line is still staffed by volunteers in the community. Um, we answer calls 24-7, um, 365 days a year and uh, callers can be of any gender identity so it's not just targeted for female survivors so that's sort of our baseline now then we grew out and we offer one-on-one individual counseling um, and then support groups as well post counseling the individual counseling is for female identified only 15 age and above Um, it's free and it's um, historical as well as present uh, sexual violence And then we have our whole prevention wing, which is sort of where I come in. Um, So we do a lot of public education speaks in high schools, um, in university programs. Uh, Unions often have us in for disclosure training. Um, So what are the knowledge bases and the things that we can mobilize to stop sexual violence from happening in community? Okay. Certainly this is a very far-reaching kind of program. It's not concentrated just on, you know, like youths, Mm -mm. but basically everybody in the community. Our mandate's huge, so anything that links to gender, the rainbow community, violence, homelessness, we can, yeah, we can sort of push a voice. Oh, wow. So uh, you did mention that you're getting a new name, you're merging with another organization. What Do you, do you know the new name for what's it, it's going to be? No? No, I don't have that power. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it should come out in the fall. Um, yeah. And for everyone listening, uh Western itself, when we, if you were to go on to Western's uh, sexual violence prevention website, you'll see that SACL is listed as a resource that we promote to all of our students to also use. And like Annalise said, it's, uh, you can call the crisis line absolutely anytime. It's completely anonymous. Um, as well, all of the other services are available yeah. to you. And we're always looking for volunteers. Our crisis and support line is staffed by predominantly university and college-based volunteers. So. Right. It's a great program. It is. <laughs> well, speaking of this and all this community work, you recently defended your PhD. Is that right? I did. Two yeah. weeks ago. Uh, no, sorry. I convocated <laughs> a week ago. I defended at the end of April. I was going to say, it was a while ago. Yeah. yeah. Well, first of all, congratulations. But um, So the question is, what are your plans now post-doctorate? My plans are what I'm currently doing. Well. (laughs) No, 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 but fair enough. Right, yeah. Um, I mean, sticking in community in some way, I I hate the notion of sort of the selective ivory tower disembodied from Mm -hmm. community space. And I've really found my home in community uh, starting in year two of my PhD. That's where I spent most of my time, most of my effort. Um, So, yeah, I would like to continue in the new organization, broaden sort of provincially what that can mean in terms of bringing more research-informed practice into community, but also feeding community's voice into the research um, and sort of bridging. And I'm, I'm not innovative in saying that, uh, not at all. Like, that bridge has been established in the past already. But, um, yeah, doing more of that bridging work. So I think it's great to hear from someone who's graduated and not necessarily pursuing the traditional academic route. Um, so this is more of a broad question, not specific to women's studies. Is it a challenge to step out of the academic, uh, I guess, thought process or realm in your third, fourth year of your PhD, and how did you sort of make that decision that this is this is the direction I'm going to choose to go, to more community-based work? I wouldn't say it was an intentional decision when I re- initially made it. I was just looking uh, for some money. 
I needed employment, as most of us do. And I, I found employment, and I found my community, my link, my sort of social justice passion that drove me in. When you ask, though, is it challenging to make the bridge work happen? Yeah, big time. So a large chunk of my conclusion in uh, the thesis was focused on how I had failed to really do that fulsomely, um, that the language that I use in my analysis in the PhD is completely inaccessible. Mm-hmm. Um and that I had committed all the sort of academic sins around delving into girls' voices and using what they had said, but then not being able to really feed that back to the girls in any way. I'd lost touch with most of the girls, as we do in community. Um, they're quite transient sometimes. And so they never saw the product of their words. They were never a part of actually writing their words up. Um, so in terms of really good feminist best practice, I, I failed on a lot of levels. And I had a real self-reflective space around how that's so challenging. I went into writing my thesis wanting my mom and my partner to be able to read it. Mm -hmm. And I left the writing process being like, yeah, no, neither of them can really read it uh, with any degree of understanding. So there was grief in that for me. Mm -hmm. So are you now, would you say, hoping to translate your research into a more accessible form through your community work or is your community work kind of separate from your thesis work? Um, They're never separate. And at my public lecture, I actually had quite a few community folk come, and one of them made a really interesting comment, which was, and I take this with a grain of salt, but that my very existence in community is a moment of knowledge translation, that it isn't sort of this thing that I have to then go and embark upon, that I have to rewrite the thesis in a language that's community-oriented, but that by bringing my knowledge to every meeting that I sit in, um, that translation piece is happening inadvertently. That's great, and I think that applies to all... Uh, academic backgrounds, what regardless of program, right? I mean, just the very fact that you're involved in interacting with these community initiatives is, you know, making yourself a bridge between these two communities. Yeah, is that sort of what you were? Yeah, or, or it feels a little uncomfortable because I'm yeah? like, my existence is the bridge, which is yeah. ridiculous. But um, yes, I do think that it's important <laughs> to sort okay, of be so maybe in not those meetings and those spaces. Yeah, right, but sort of speaks to the importance of perhaps maybe sometimes leaving our ivory tower or at least interacting with people outside well, of I these think, ivory towers. I, like I had a conversation with my supervisor that oftentimes researchers, we sort of do the research and then, you know, it's done. It's, right. it's, it's published. Now let's ask the next question. Let's yeah. grow on the research. Yeah. But we haven't done the piece to actually put it into action. And that's the knowledge translation piece. So I think being present as in that would be actually taking what you've learned and now applying it. And having Mm -hmm. a bit of a political moment here, but I mean, if you are a researcher, you have a crap ton of privilege, and I think it's incumbent upon you to leverage that privilege in a social justice way. So you need to get involved in community and somehow, in Mm -hmm. some way, shape, or form. Okay. I mean, is that something you would say about uh, yourself, your own program, sort of the humanities in general, or is this something that you believe um, perhaps all graduate students should aspire to? I, I would put it out as a bit of a call to action across all disciplines and parts. Okay. I don't. I think it will look very differently if you're in medicine, for sure, mm-hmm. um, or if you're in sort of the classics. Yep, I, I, I get those challenges. I get that I'm in a social work field, and that makes life a little easier. Um, but again, when I come back to thinking about privilege, um, it is really incumbent upon us, uh, sort of having had the privilege to do academics, whatever that might mean, um, that we, we make that space more readily available for others. 
I completely agree. I come from a kinesiology background, and I think that, um, well, my research is exercise and pregnancy, and, you know, you know all the research about having pregnant women become active, but if you don't tell them, well, then what? Exactly. Yeah. All right. I mean, that that's actually quite great. I, I'm sure that most of us come in with some, you know, idealistic dreams of contributing to the overall betterment of humanity in general and perhaps some way along, somewhere along the line many of us you know lose sight of yeah this um, starry-eyed idealism perhaps that we come in with and it's great and amazing to be able to reconnect with that to not lose touch with that and to sort of have a reflective moment of you know why are we pursuing this education anyway. I mean, mm-hmm. there's lots of self-fulfillment. It's, you know, mm-hmm. nice. It's cool. Some of us might mm-hmm. want to make a lot more money. But, you know, yeah. ideally, it's to help other people. And it doesn't have to look like having a job in this not-for-profit right. sector, right? You can go and join a board and bring that knowledge base to that. You can go and volunteer and have that and then still have your profit-making awesome career. There are different ways of sort of leveraging that privilege. Mm-hmm. Great. So going back to your current role, what what's happening now in Sackle for you? So what are some upcoming projects or um, are you now working towards the next uh, round for this program when it runs again? So the program's consistently running. We okay. have multiple sites always running. Um, but the new sort of up and coming is that we're going to launch a boys program, our oh, guys cool. program. So we have some pilot initial funds to sort of test out one space for that. Um, and over the summer, I'm doing a focus group with some young-ish adult men or male-identified folk to get a sense of when their aha moment was around feminism and sort of coming to an understanding of masculinity and how we can prompt that in other young boys. Okay, so I'm going to come in with this um, perhaps naive question that's been sort of simmering. We've been using terms like feminism, things like patriarchy, yep. and now we've gone on to boys. Um, so for those of us who may not be very well versed in this subject Uh, you come from the department of women's studies and i mean for some people this uh, prompts the question why why are women special and have their own studies why not men's studies why do boys and men need to have special programs to learn about women's studies and feminism and that is an effervescent debate so some universities (laughs) title the department gender studies in order to sort okay. of hold more inclusive space let's right. call it the argument for calling it women's studies is sort of and i will do the politically incorrect moment here mm-hmm. of comparing it to black lives matter we don't need a white lives matter because white lives always matter that is sort of the norm and the privilege and we need to call attention to the oppression and to hold space for that so Entitling it women's studies, we're calling attention to the fact that women have been oppressed, that those those realities and those lives have to be held sort of in a special space. Does that mean that men can't be feminist? Hell no. Please be a feminist. Um, does <laughs> right. that mean that men can't take women's studies courses? No. Please be liberated and take them. <laughs> Join your sister allies in those spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, that that is an effervescent debate. Well, I mean, so going back on that, I've heard other people describe to me that, you know, essentially all the other disciplines are more or less men's studies. So even having one department um, specifically called mm-hmm. women's studies is 
you know, some effort to kind of push back about that, mm-hmm. to sort of recognize the imbalance historically that has been in sort of our society. And you just answered that better than I did, so well, well done. <laughs> <laughs> and so just as we're coming towards the end, uh, this new program that we'll be launching, is it going to be focusing on ed- educating the uh, male-identifying participants participants in the program uh, about feminism so what's the content going to look like no so it it won't be sort of a teaching or a preaching it will be really a, a space just like the girls program is to discover what it means to be a girl so in the boys context what does it mean to be a boy like what are the messages society is compelling upon you don't be emotional don't be sort of a sissy blah 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 all the other bad mm-hmm. words um and where do we get those messages how can we connect with sort of something beyond that what does it mean to be an emotional man what are models that look sort of more in tune with what you're hoping for mm-hmm. um and so it would have male-identified facilitators, um, and there would be a sanctity to that space so that there's a safety as well for them to voice that. Mm-hmm. That's great. And will this be the same age group as the girls' group? or? So I would start targeting at high school boys, and then we'll see. Um, boys overall are a little bit less involved in social service programming, so they're a little mm-hmm. harder to access unless you go through the high schools, which is has its own challenges right now. Um, so we're going to start with a pilot. We're going to okay. see how high school age recruitment goes. Um, without reifying sort of male stereotypes, I'm wondering what activities do boys want to engage in? So, right. you know, sports, gaming would be the obvious stereotypical ones, but by offering those, am I just reiterating that that's what masculinity means? How do you hold that space? Mm-hmm. That's okay. great. And, I mean, is there any sort of specific, um, I mean, outside of the, uh, I guess, convenience, the sort of um, political, maybe accessibility reasons of going after high school students? Is there something about that age group that is, um, you know, specifically important for these sorts of programs? Well, other than that age group being my personal favorite, I right. think that they have enough lived experience to pull on to sort of do some analysis. So if you go into grade six, that's actually a better prevention moment, hmm. but they don't have a lot of lived experience to connect to the messages you're putting out. Um, and then, you know, in the 20s, that's all great and good, but it's kind of later in the game. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. high school's a fun time. <laughs> Challenging, but fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, so we are coming up to the end of our program. So, Annalise, if there is perhaps like a one-minute kind of takeaway, an encapsulation of everything that we've talked about, everything that you've spent the last couple of years working on, <laughs> is there, um, you know, like a catchphrase or something that you'd be able to leave our listeners with to think about? Way to put a person on the spot. That's amazing. Um, no. <laughs> I'd just be glad I'm not in your defense I'll- committee. <laughs> right? Um, No, I think I would just go back to what we had already talked about, which is um, really be intentional about thinking how you can bring your own research into community in some way. Um, So don't get caught in the ivory tower trope. There are ways of making those connections. And, you know, if you're not self-identifying as a feminist, please go and research what that actually means Mm -hmm. and see if that might resonate with who you are amazing and one quick last question if anybody wanted to get in touch with you or learn more about your research is there anywhere they could go online or anything any way to kind of figure out what Annalise is up to yeah um, feel free to email me Um, so you can connect with me at the sexual assault center Annalise at S-A-C-L dot C-A I would love to have coffee and talk about the research talk about your research or talk about the community itself 
Perfect. Thank you so much for being on our show today, Annalise. I think it was a great conversation. We touched on so many different topics that resonate with everyone, regardless of program, as well as learn a lot about your research. So thank you. Thanks for the conversation. Well, thanks very much. And uh, to cap everything off tonight, let me remind everybody that GradCast uh, doesn't just broadcast on CHRW on the radio. Every other week, we also do a podcast. We, in fact, often do two podcasts. And if you'd like to look up our archives or this program later on, you can come to www.gradcastradio.ca. And if you're interested in coming on yourself and talking about your work and your research, we would love to have you. Please get in touch with us. Thank you very much and have a great night.